Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Uh, as you can probably tell, I have a little case of the sniffles this week, so I sound worse than Gilbert Gottfried singing karaoke. Ah! Anyway, lucky for me, we're about to get a visit from a doctor. That's right. Today on the docket, we have a story from This American Life that aired 10 years ago back in 2013. This is a peak primo era for This American Life. It's the year of that hilarious 129 Cars episode that follows around employees at a dealership and the creative strategies these guys use to close deals. It's also the era of that heartbreaking story titled What Happened at Dos Eres, the story of a massacre of 200 people in Guatemala, and how an immigrant discovers the disturbing truth about his past. That story is an absolute must-listen. Plus, it's also the year of the episode Use Only as Directed, a scathing expose about children's Tylenol that I'm still haunted by. Ugh, I'm like tempted to make this a five-hour episode and just talk about all of these. I gotta give This American Life credit for opening me up to the world of podcasts, getting access to these incredible stories that I've never heard anywhere else. Like today's story, reported by a rising star in podcast land, Sarah Koenig, later known for a little show called Serial. Heard of it? I have a lot of opinions about Koenig's reporting on the Adnan Syed case, but I'll save those for another time, otherwise this episode would be over eight hours long. Instead, we are going to learn about a small-town country doctor who, against all odds, finds a way to save a man's life. And to take your listening experience of today's episode to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. I'll also include links this week to the other aforementioned episodes of This American Life. And now, a country doctor who's going to save the day by the end of this episode. 
And no, I'm not talking about Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. But do indulge me just a quick sec. I am under the weather after all, and I just need a quick 20-second dose of some comfort nostalgia TV before things get too heavy around here. Preteen frizzy-haired Angela was obsessed with Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. Jane Seymour, a.k.a. Dr. Mike, and Jill Lando, a.k.a. Sully, a.k.a. the white Native American man, made such a hot couple with hashtag hair goals. Ugh, do you guys remember that episode where that old frontier man thought he was a bird? And he covered himself with feathers and tried to fly and slept in a nest and pecked at all his food like a human bird man? What even was 90s TV? This was a very serious, dramatic, primetime hit show. And TV viewers knew every week, no matter the obstacle, whether it be a dude who thinks he's a bird, a saloon robbery committed by a tween girl, or racism in general, the expert country doctor, Michaela Quinn, would eradicate the problem just before 9 p.m. every Saturday Eastern Standard Time. But today's real-life case of a country doctor will out-crazy any Dr. Quinn plot you've ever seen. So hold on tight to your saddle horns. We're going to Fletcher, North Carolina. A town of about 8,000 people, just 25 minutes outside of Asheville. The year is 2009, and we meet Dr. Benjamin Gilmer. He just finished med school. He's in a ton of debt. Married with a kiddo and another one on the way. He applies for a position at the Cane Creek Family Health Center in Fletcher. The practice has a little bit of a weird vibe. The staff seems a bit reluctant to hire him, but eventually he lands the position. And soon, Dr. Benjamin Gilmer realizes why the staff was hesitant. Benjamin had the same last name as the previous doctor who worked at the health center. Dr. Vince Gilmer. And Vince was the one who originally started the practice, and he left abruptly. Now Benjamin had taken his place. There was confusion by the patients at first. A common interaction when booking appointments would be, wait, Dr. Gilmer is back? Is this some kind of sick joke? And the staff would have to reassure them, no, this is a different Dr. Gilmer, no relation. One female patient even started having a literal panic attack in the waiting room when the receptionist told her Dr. Gilmer would be right out. She started freaking out thinking that she was about to encounter Dr. Vince Gilmer when instead Dr. Benjamin walked out to greet her. Uh, I realize now I totally left something out. I forgot to mention that Dr. Vince Gilmer had abruptly left the Cane Creek Family Health Center after he was arrested for murder. And not just any run-of-the-mill random murder. Vince Gilmer was serving a life sentence for the killing of his own father. As you can imagine, this twist of events shocked the townspeople of Fletcher. Vince had been their beloved family doctor, and his horrific crime rocked this small community to its core. Many folks still couldn't believe it. They looked back at all their interactions with Dr. Vince, and there was never any indication that this man was capable of murder. 
A lot of former patients of Dr. Vince Gilmer relayed their stories to the new Dr. Benjamin Gilmer. He heard glowing stories like Dr. Vince had patients without insurance and they'd be paying out of pocket so he wouldn't charge them for tests. And he'd give away medications from sample packs. There was even a former patient named Ruth Tracy who said Vincent didn't charge her for medical visits for over six months while she was very sick and her husband was out of work. Vince was even known to make house calls if patients couldn't make it into the doctor's office. Vince Gilmer even earned himself the nickname The Bear because he was always giving out these great big warm bear hugs. The new Dr. Benjamin heard story after story of what a kind, compassionate person Dr. Vince was. No one could reconcile that the same man who was so magnanimous was also a cold-blooded killer. It would have made more sense if instead Dr. Vince started thinking he was a bird and covered himself with feathers and tried to fly and sleep in a nest and pecked at his food like a human bird man. That probably would have been a less shocking move for Vince than committing murder. There was so much disbelief that some folks were questioning if the cops and the judge had it all wrong. There were theories floating around that perhaps Vince had killed his elderly father out of compassion. His father was diminishing both mentally and physically, suffering from dementia. So maybe that's why Vince killed him, to end his suffering. How else could you explain his actions? Things were getting confusing for Benjamin, too. After hearing these stories of Dr. Vince, he found himself yearning to be that same kind of compassionate, caring family doctor and fill that void in the community. Benjamin was feeling this connection to Vince, really starting to identify with this man. They were so eerily similar. It was almost as if Benjamin had assumed Vince's life. One day at the healthcare center, a former patient of Vince's told Dr. Benjamin, You know Vince knows you're here, right? This thought gave Dr. Benjamin chills up and down his spine. What if Vince was in prison, seething over the fact that some random dude with the same last name had swooped in and taken over the practice that he had worked so hard to build? What if Vince somehow escaped prison and was out for revenge? Dr. Benjamin was haunted by these dueling versions of Vince, the tender-hearted doctor and the evil monster. These wandering thoughts about Vince slowly became an obsession, even giving Benjamin nightmares. He couldn't continue on like this. He needed to take action. Benjamin could either A, run away, uproot his family from the town of Fletcher, and abandon the practice, or B, he could double down, learn everything he could about Vince, and find a way to make it all make sense. I'm so glad Dr. Benjamin goes for option B. And now we all get to be like Dr. Michaela Quinn and investigate along. So let's help Dr. Benjamin find a diagnosis and solve the mystery of Dr. Vince Gilmer. Wrapping up the story all before our bedtime at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So what are you thinking so far? Is this all a mistake and Vince was wrongfully convicted? Or was he a secret psychopath hiding in plain sight this whole time? Hmm, I was strongly leaning toward wrongful conviction at first until I heard the details of the crime. So the crime occurred on June 28, 2004. Dr. Vince closed the clinic early to pick up his father, 
Dalton, better known as Don Gilmer, was only 60 years old, but suffering from dementia and had recently been diagnosed with schizophrenia. He could barely walk and was confined to a wheelchair. Vince went to pick up his father from a state-run treatment facility and transport him to a private care facility. But the two never made it there. Instead, Vince claimed that he had made a planned detour to take his father Don to his favorite lake and do some canoeing. The lake was located a few hours out of the way. Vince did have his kayak tied up to his truck, however, he didn't have a walker or any way to assist his disabled father in and out of the kayak. And plus, it was getting close to dark. Two days later, Vince reports that his father, Dalton Don Gilmer, was missing. He told the authorities that he and his father were on a canoe trip, and his father wandered off into the woods, and he hadn't seen or heard from him since. Dr. Vince carried on acting normal all week. Yes, he mentioned that his father went missing, but he didn't let that affect his work. He continued to take scheduled appointments and nobody noticed anything off about him. Five days after Don Gilmer went missing, Vince was out to lunch with his staff when he got a call from the authorities. A body had been found on the side of the road in Virginia. They believed this man to be the deceased Dalton Don Gilmer. Right from the jump, the police had been sus about Vince and his whole canoe trip story. An officer came to his house for questioning. Vince's story changed at that point. He said he actually brought his father back home to Fletcher, and his dad was having a wonderful evening outside playing frisbee with the dog, and then wandered off. Again, this made no sense because Don Gilmer was confined to a wheelchair and not frolicking in the meadow tossing a frisbee with exuberance. When pressed further, Dr. Vince became irate with the cop saying, how dare you accuse me of wrongdoing? I'm a doctor of medicine, and I'll have your job. And with that, the interview was over. Later on, the medical examiner completed the autopsy and found that Don Gilmer had been strangled to death with a rope, and the killer had cut off his fingers, which is usually done to prevent the body from being identified. But the killer made the dumb mistake of leaving Don Gilmer's medical identification card in his trouser pocket. At this point, authorities are focusing all their efforts into investigating Vince. They discovered he was his father's legal guardian. Vince was also in charge of his father's finances and was supposed to be paying his bills, but he wasn't. In fact, Vince owed the medical facility that his father had been staying at over $270,000. Vince had also recently booked a one-way flight to Alaska, but he never actually went on the flight. Instead, he bought a bunch of camping equipment and disappeared into the North Carolina woods, AKA he hid out behind the Lowe's Home Improvement Store in Asheville. They were able to track down Vince pretty quickly and charge him with murder. All right, so now what are you thinking? Things are starting to look real, real bad for Vince. I'm starting to lean towards that he was a secret psychopath hiding in plain sight this whole time camp because this looks like a clear-cut case of premeditated murder. And Vince made a very concerted effort to cover up his actions and was showing no remorse. Is there any other way to look at it? 
Dr. Benjamin Gilmore thinks so. So let's take a look at things from the wise country doctor's perspective. A year leading up to the murder, Dr. Vince started feeling weird, like he was losing his mind. His behavior was becoming more erratic. He had been on antidepressants for a while, but those seemed to no longer be working for him. So Vince abruptly stops taking his meds, at the same time increasing his drinking. He had also gotten into a really bad accident. Vince flipped his truck on an exit ramp and slammed into a telephone pole. He was really banged up and disoriented, didn't even recognize his own wife, Karen. When asked for his name, he replied, Bobby Brown. That's right, Bobby Brown. Vince fancied himself to be the ex-husband of Whitney and former sixth member of New Edition for over 24 hours until he started to come out of it. Longtime friends of Vince were a little surprised by his increasingly unpredictable behavior and even wondered if he had crashed his truck on purpose. Vince had been super stressed out lately about taking his upcoming medical board exams. He was never a great test taker. and Lately, he wasn't feeling very sharp at all. Maybe the pressure was just getting too much for him and he couldn't take it anymore. Others thought that Vince just wanted a new truck. His wife, Karen, told him he couldn't get one, and she was in charge of the finances. So maybe this was a wackadoo loophole way for him to upgrade from a Tacoma to a new Tundra. Oh, and also, shortly after this accident, Vince and his wife, Karen, divorce. Karen and Vince had been together since med school, and they even started the practice together. This breakup seemed to come completely out of the blue. Friends and family, though, they just chalk it up to Vince having a midlife crisis. But looking back now, Dr. Benjamin points to the accident and the head injury as a crucial point for Vince. He also starts looking into Vince's case and trial for clues. Once Vince was arrested, he does eventually confess to strangling and dismembering his own father, but the details are murky. And he also makes some bombshell claims. Number one, Vince alleges that his father, Don Gilmer, had been physically and sexually abusive with him and his younger sister, starting when they were both very young children. His sister goes on to corroborate these claims in a pretrial hearing, but then disappears before Vince's trial. No one in her family has seen or heard from her since 2005. Her whereabouts remains a mystery. Vince's mother claims she had no idea her children had been sexually abused, but does attest to the physical abuse. Don Gilmer had been a Vietnam War veteran, and she blames her late husband's violent outbursts on untreated PTSD. She also describes Don's lewd behavior. He was constantly making inappropriate remarks and groping at people. In fact, Vince claimed that the night of the murder, his father Don kept trying to touch him inappropriately while Vince was driving, and that's why he snapped. Okay, so I am believing Vince's story up until the part where he claims that this wasn't premeditated. It seemed like Vince had a plan to kill his father. Not a great plan, but a plan nonetheless. He had gloves and rope and a saw and pruning shears all in his new Toyota Tundra truck. And he told folks ahead of time that he planned to take his father for a canoe ride. 
And again, that one-way flight to Alaska, he booked that prior to the murder. That's some hard evidence against Vince. But you may be able to start making sense of these inconsistencies once you learn about bombshell number two. Vince claimed he had a lack of serotonin in his brain after he abruptly stopped taking his SSRI medication, which stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. People who take SSRIs are usually recommended to slowly wean off them. Otherwise, the withdrawals can cause terrible side effects like severe agitation, suicidal thoughts, risky behaviors, and even psychosis. Vince claimed the days leading up to his father's murder, he started hearing voices and stopped having control over his brain. Between Vince withdrawing from meds and having a traumatic head injury, you could start to make the case that he wasn't in his right mind. But this still doesn't paint the whole picture. We need more information. It's time for Dr. Benjamin Gilmer to meet Dr. Vince Gilmer. At this point, Vince Gilmer has been in prison for six years. He's been interviewed by police, reporters, and two psychologists, and even represented himself at his own trial in front of 12 jurors. They all came to the same conclusion. Vince was putting on an act, faking a mental illness. The cops, reporter, psychiatrist, they all describe these weird interactions they had sitting across from Vince, and he's making these head gestures and sporadic movements with his arms. The behavior would get more dramatic when the questions became more incriminating. Then Vince would start crying. Then he'd switch back to, quote, normal when it didn't seem to be getting him anywhere. Everyone seemed to think that this intelligent Dr. Vince was simply trying to manipulate his way out of being in trouble. Everyone except Dr. Benjamin Gilmer. He begins corresponding with Vince via letters. Vince was thrilled to hear from Dr. Benjamin. His words were filled with kindness and appreciation. But his long letters were filled with manic ramblings, scrawled with this messy, nearly illegible penmanship. This communication was getting hard for Dr. Benjamin to decipher, so he decides to meet Vince face-to-face. -face. He visits Vince in prison. They talk for hours. And the more Vince talks, the more Benjamin is convinced that this man has an obvious medical condition and should not be in prison. Dr. Benjamin continues to scour over transcripts from the trial. Vince's self-defense arguments were also these incoherent ramblings that went nowhere. All he could do was talk about his SSRI medication and the lack of serotonin in his brain. He's been consistently crying out about this problem for over six years now, and things have only seemed to get worse, both mentally and physically. So if he was just faking, why would he continue on this tired charade that no one believed for over six years? Dr. Benjamin kept digging. He studied Vince's brain scans after the accident. He poured over research on SSRI withdrawals. There were constant phone calls with Vince as he did his best to describe his deteriorating symptoms. Vince was fixated on a particular medical treatment and he would beg the DOC to give him 80 to 100 milligrams of Celexa to help stabilize his brain. He was convinced it was the only thing that could help him, but the staff refused. Vince was at the point of giving up and having suicidal thoughts. 
Meanwhile, Dr. Benjamin still can't fully explain Vince's condition. The brain injury and the SSRI medication withdrawal do not explain his continued physical and mental deterioration. Dr. Benjamin still has no explanation, and things are getting dire. And now I'm getting really worried that this country doctor isn't going to be able to solve the case in time for my bedtime at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you guys. Time for Dr. Benjamin to bring in reinforcements. He enlists the help of his friend, a psychiatrist named Dr. Steve Bowie. Dr. Steve accompanies Dr. Benjamin on a jailhouse visit to meet Vince. And Dr. Steve interviews and observes him for a few hours, but again, no clear answers present themselves. And now they've reached the end of the road. The two visiting doctors say their goodbyes to Vince, and as they walk out, Dr. Steve Bowie stops dead in his tracks. Wait, what if it's Huntington's? Dr. Benjamin is gobsmacked. Of course, Huntington's, that would make perfect sense. And as luck would have it, shortly after this visit, Vince was moved to a correctional treatment center, and they allow Vince to be tested for Huntington's disease. The test comes back positive, and it is such a bittersweet moment. Finally, they have their answers. But also, this comes with the realization that Vince has one of the cruelest medical conditions a person can have. Huntington's is an incurable, eventually fatal disease, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and Lou Gehrig's disease all combined. A slow, painful deterioration of mental, physical, and emotional faculties. A person with Huntington's can live up to 20 years with a horrific disease, but they eventually succumb to death, and usually from a complication like choking. And most importantly, Huntington's disease also explains Vince's swift change in behavior. Why he crashed his car, stopped taking his meds, divorced his wife, murdered his own father. This affliction is known to cause violent mood swings, hallucinations, behavioral disturbances. It kills off brain cells and diminishes the brain's ability to produce neurotransmitters a.k.a. he was severely lacking in serotonin. This whole time, Vince hadn't been faking his condition. The two Dr. Gilmers had been on the right path all along. Most likely, Vince's father, Don, had this same genetic condition of Huntington's disease as well. Vince had been going through this undiagnosed torment for years, but he is elated to finally get a diagnosis to finally get answers to this chaos that had slowly been taking over his brain and body. So now what? After the diagnosis, Vince was put on medication and his condition improved immediately. And it so happened to be the exact medication Vince had been requesting all along. 80 milligrams of Celexa, an SSRI. Cognitively, Vince was nearly back to normal. And he was so grateful to Benjamin for believing in him and helping Vince find the truth to get some peace. To this day, Dr. Benjamin Gilmer continues to advocate for his friend, Dr. Vince Gilmer. Their remarkable story was reported on various media outlets, including This American Life. It created an outpouring of support, which eventually led to the governor of Virginia, where the murder took place to grant Vince a conditional pardon in 2022. 
As of this recording, Vince is still waiting to be relocated to an approved facility where he can be treated for his Huntington's disease. Dr. Benjamin started a GoFundMe campaign, which raised over $100,000. Dr. Benjamin Gilmore continues to work at the Cane Creek Family Health Center and gives Vince updates about his work at the practice. The two Dr. Gilmers, an unlikely duo, will forever be connected by this transcendent bond to one another. Much like Byron Sully and Dr. Michaela Quinn, medicine woman. Oh, you guys, I remember exactly how I felt when I heard this story for the first time. I was experiencing the most intense whiplash. But luckily for me, my hair was down and this sudden back and forth movement was like giving myself a voluminous blowout. Hashtag hair goals. It's definitely worth listening back to the original This American Life coverage of the story. Hearing Vince and Benjamin speak to one another, plus folks from the town of Fletcher give their take on things. And if you're familiar with Sarah Caning now, when you listen back to this episode, it feels a little like a serial season one prequel. I would love to hear your thoughts about this story. So let's dish. Email me directly at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start the ranking, a quick update. I'm going to be binging Gallery of Lies and The Estate this week, so I'll let you know my thoughts on those. I'm also holding off for now on Magnificent Jerk until all of the episodes drop so I can do a rainy day baking binge listen. And now, without further ado, let's get down to business. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have The Dream Season 3. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Past seasons of this award-winning investigative podcast looked at pyramid schemes and the world of wellness. This season, we're getting to know the gurus and life coaches who claim they know the secret to living our best lives. Is it all in our mindset? Or our privilege? Or are we all under a spell? All right, I gotta admit, this season does feel a little loosey-goosey, but I'm totally on board for the ride. However, I do realize that Jane Marie recording herself in these super vulnerable life coach therapy sessions might not be everyone's cup of matcha, but you can skip past that first section in this latest episode five, and then you're going to be privy to a wild Zoom meeting with a prominent multi-level marketing coach. I'm also super excited for the teasers and the upcoming episode all about hypnotic techniques these coaches and the occasional cult leader uses, such as neuro-linguistic programming. So yeah, even though the show might not be for everyone, I'm continuing to be mesmerized by the dream season three. 
At the number two spot, we have Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Amid the nuclear threat of the Cold War, America's prized secrets were falling into the hands of its sworn enemy. The FBI's hunt for the leak led to an astonishing discovery. The mole was one of their own, Special Agent Robert Hansen. For two decades, Hansen masqueraded as a devoted patriot while ruthlessly selling out his country, trading classified intelligence to the Soviet Union and later Russia in exchange for cash and diamonds. Through interviews with Hansen's family, friends, and colleagues, CBS News Chief Washington correspondent Major Garrett delves into the double life of Robert Hansen and unravels the chilling truth about the most damaging spy in FBI history. Yeah, this one came out of nowhere. I don't think I've ever listened to a CBS original podcast before, but I shouldn't be shocked that it's so good because it comes from the same network that brought us Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. And it definitely has that big network media vibe, but the story is really interesting so far and a really different kind of story than I'm used to consuming. So I am surprisingly intrigued by Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. And at the number one spot, we have Murder in Apartment 12. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Nona Dirksmeyer is a young beauty queen, smart and talented. Her future is bright. But just days before her 20th birthday, Nona is murdered in her apartment. Police quickly decide their primary suspect is the young man who found her, her boyfriend, Kevin. And after all, his bloody palm print is at the crime scene. Case closed? Not by a long shot. In Dateline's latest original podcast series, Keith Morrison tells the story of three trials, two suspects, and one small town where things are not always what they seem. Dude, 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 you guys, episode three was the drum roll into episode four, which was the beat drop. Boyfriend Kevin goes on trial for the murder of Nona, and a lot of stuff comes to the surface. So much so that I had to keep picking my jaw up off the floor because I couldn't believe what folks involved with the story were saying on tape. A juror admits to a pretty interesting technique to sway an opinion. And then hearing from the prosecutors and Nona's stepdad, dude, calm, cool, collected Keith Morrison is just asking simple questions. But instead of getting simple responses, there's a lot of, let's say, defensiveness. Who am I kidding? Things start turning into a full-on Looney Tunes cartoon. And I am living for this one. If you were on the fence about the show, it's time to get on board with murder in apartment 12. Keith Morrison, interrogate me. Now for my miss of the week. Oh, this is going to be a mouthful. We have Against the Rules Season 4, Judging Sam, colon, The Trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. Here's a summary. Just a year ago, Sam Bankman-Fried was heralded as a wonderkind, a genius, a crypto innovator, a major philanthropist, and a political donor. He was worth tens of billions of dollars. FTX, the crypto exchange he founded, was buying Super Bowl ads. Now he's standing trial on multiple fraud charges. If convicted, he could spend the rest of his life behind bars. 
All right, so I was a huge Michael Lewis fan after The Big Short, and I love the first two seasons of Against the Rules, but I'm starting to cool off on this guy. This season's a little bit of a shameless plug for his new book all about Sam Bankman-Fried, where he'll unpack how all of these experienced and intelligent investors thought everything was on the up and up, while the whole time Sam was duping investors out of billions while doing tons of Adderall, playing video games, and banging his coworkers. How could this have happened? Oh, and I'm just like, this story again? How many times have we heard this? The tale of a darling tech startup or crypto exchange having a meteoric rise and then turning out to be a fraud. And I feel like it's always a bunch of bros buying into these get-rich-quick schemes thinking they invested in a unicorn and skipped over any due diligence. You and I would have recognized this guy immediately as just another Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos or Billy McFarlane from Fire Festival or Gerald Cotton from Quadriga. It's starting to get pretty easy to spot these fraudsters a mile away, so I don't really get how Michael Lewis is so surprised. That being said, I am going to hate listen to every single episode of this season as this bozo goes to trial. So for now, Against the Rules Season 4, Judging Sam, colon, The Trial of Sam Bankman Freed, is going in my super secret playlist of shame. Shh, don't tell anyone. Find out next week if Murder in Apartment 12 will continue to reign in the number one spot as this series continues or if a new show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show is in your super secret playlist of shame. I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. If you enjoyed today's story, please take a moment and leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to listen to true crime feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.